Hi, Jens here. Are you interested in innovation? This might be something for you too. Every Friday, I share the latest innovation articles, ideas, videos, books, podcasts, and more that I discovered during the week in my newsletter, Connect the Dots. If you subscribe, you will receive an email into your inbox every Friday. You can't find the newsletter anywhere else, so you have to subscribe if you want to receive it. Head over to jensheitland.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. But now, let's get started with the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Jens Heitland Show, where I interview experts from different fields to connect the dots of innovation and entrepreneurship. Today's guest is an expert of modern HR. She's the author of the book, The Comeback, a novel around modern HR. She's the founder of a company called Loglab that's helping companies through creative HR solution with business results you can measure. Please welcome to the show, Anissa Tishfande. Hello, Anissa. How are you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm doing great, Jens. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to learn from you today. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. So before we go into, of course, the people part, HR, innovation, how it can be enabled, and of course, your book, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? How did you get to where you are today? Okay. Well, I have 25 years of experience in HR, IT, finance, and strategy. And I worked in corporate environments for about 20 years. And six and a half years ago, I launched my own firm. We are a strategic people advisory services firm called Loglab. And we do a couple things. First, we provide fractional chief people officer services to emerging growth and investor-backed companies, which means that we help them think through some of the bigger organizational, strategic, cultural issues that they need to put in place to make sure companies can grow. Um, and then we do content where we have, a, a, you mentioned the book, I've got uh, you know some courses that I've put online, I've got deliverables that you can purchase. And we also do coaching for emerging HR leaders. And these are HR leaders that, you know, are curious, they have the potential to grow, but they really need to maybe shift their focus a little bit from a traditional mindset to more of a modern HR mindset. Yeah. So you're living in the US. Um, and, and when I was researching you, what I found out is that you started at least in LinkedIn, you started working in 1997. Uh, at least that was the first job you posted, which is funny yeah. because I started my first job in 1997 as well. I actually started working in 1995. Oh. Uh, so uh, yeah, I had an earlier job. I guess I didn't post it there. I probably need <laughs> to, but it was all in the same type of, of, of stuff. And I actually started my career in IT. So you probably saw that. Yeah. So That's why I'm asking. So you, you started in, in a field, I mean, it was related to HR, at least from the job title, but it was not, not exactly what you do today. So how did you get from that point in starting your career, starting in IT to 
opening your own business. Okay. And so it was a long journey. Uh, you're right. I did start in IT and I actually did not start in HR systems. There was always this compelling force in my life that was pushing me into HR and I kept resisting it. And if you talk to a lot of HR professionals that have been in the industry for a while, they will tell you the same thing, that there was always something that was kind of leading them there and they, they were fighting it. So what happened to me is I spent about 10 years working in IT and I was actually doing a lot of software development methodology work. So if you were familiar at, way back when with the Rational Unified Process and iterative, iterative, iterative software development, um, that was a lot of my focus. And so I was helping clients do that when I was working for a consulting company. And then I went to go work for a bank that had a large loan origination system that they had built in-house and needed help with how they were going to manage enhancements to the system. And so they wanted more of a software development methodology type person to come in and help them do that. So I was working for the bank and my boss got fired and they thought that it was too soon for me to take the lead. So they asked me to run the department in the interim while they searched for the replacement. So it took six months to find the replacement. And when the replacement came, they said to me, hey, you know, um, he really can't take control of this group while you're here. So would you go do something else in the business? And they gave me a couple of options. And one of them was outside of IT to go work for the chief administrative officer to look for overhead savings across the bank. And this was about 2007. So the mortgage industry was starting to turn and we needed to really think about, you know, how are we going to survive in the next phase? And so what we what I did is I helped her really look for what I'll call structural non-labor savings. Um, so no layoffs, but like, you know, how could we be more efficient? How could we get better at what we do and how could we save costs? So I did that. And then she had um, HR reporting to her and she asked me if I would go work in HR. And really the concept was that the, the company had before the downturn, the company had experienced exponential growth. And the HR processes hadn't kept up. So it would be things like you would run payroll and not everybody would get a paycheck or you'd send the benefits file to the um, provider and people would drop. So their coverage would drop. And that creates, as you can imagine, a, a, a really significant or terrible employee experience. And so it was a lot of process work. And so she asked me to go um, transform these departments, get them, you know, operating in an optimized way and return them back to the rightful owner of them. So it was very much a transformation role. So I was doing that. And then the bank failed as many banks failed in 2008. And we went into conservatorship with, a, you know, one of the U S regulatory entities called the FDIC, the federal deposit insurance company. Don't, don't uh, quote me on that, but I think that's what it stands <laughs> for, but you can Google FDIC. Um, and so for, uh, and, and what happened at that point is I became the chief people officer of a failed bank, which is one of the hardest things that you'll ever have to do because we had to lay off a bunch of people. We had to, um, really help the, the, you know, the new owners figure out how, what was happening in the bank and how to survive and then really, you know, how to sell it. And so I did that for a while. And while I was doing that, um, I got recruited to join a Fortune 500 engineering co and construction company 
that um, if I was recruited by the CFO to serve as his chief of staff or his director of special projects. And what my role there was, uh, was to really follow him around and understand how a Fortune 500 executive assesses risk and um, makes decisions and deals with, you know, everything that happens across a variety of functions, right? Not just, you know, like, okay, I'm the head of FP&A, but I have all of these different functions, all of these different responsibilities, and how do I manage all of that. And so it was considered a development opportunity. And um, I also got some special projects as part of that. And one of the projects he had me run was running the strategic project, sorry, the strategic planning process for the company. And as part of that, we realized that there was a gap between what the company was striving to do um, and our recruiting processes. So this was a professional services firm. And if we didn't have the right talent, there was no way that we could hit our revenue goals. And so after a couple of years with him, he asked me to go run global talent acquisition. So I was uh, responsible for um, the recruitment of 20,000 people annually in 150 countries. So did a lot of traveling, got to learn about it, a, a lot of different um, cultures and how recruiting works, how, how employment works, how labor works in different countries. Um, and I also got had the opportunity to run internal talent initiatives that were really focused on driving business results. So instead of just having performance management that checks the box, making sure that performance management aligned to business results. So if the company didn't achieve its goals, we couldn't have a huge percentage of our employees meeting expectations. Right. So making sure those yeah. things aligned. So whether it was performance management, succession planning, all those types of things. So I did that for six and a half years and I loved what I was doing, but I felt this need uh, to do something bigger, to have a larger impact. And I thought, um, why not take the same concept of, of applying modern HR practices or aligning HR to, to business results and business goals and help smaller companies do that. And that's what uh, led me to launch my own firm. Mm. Love it. Then, of course, we need to talk about the name of, of, of your company before we go into culture and a lot of other interesting topics. How did you come up with that name? Yeah, it's a funny story. So um, Log actually means people in Hindi. And um, so I really wanted to call the company People Lab. It was taken in, when I went to go register uh, the company. And so I, you know, I, I was in the Indian grocery store with my mom, actually, and I turned to her and I said, hey, mom, how do you say people in Hindi? And she said, it's Logue. And I'm like, that's it. It's Logue Lab. Um, <laughs> and so that's and it's kind of cool because it's a you know, it's it's also just a little bit of the culture that gets weaved into the company name, which is really nice. Yeah. And it's uh, like 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 we discussed before the recording, it's always a conversation starter as well. If people don't get it straight away, like exactly, I <laughs> exactly. I, a lot of people call it Log Lab and I have to correct. And then they're like, oh, well, what? tell me what it means. Yeah. No, no, like I said, so for, for everyone who's listening or watching, I was I was seeing it on the website and and it looks like the German U yeah. with, with like two dots on, on, on the O and, and then was translating it into Swedish where I was living before. And, and that would mean onion. And then it's <laughs> yeah. like, that can't be true. <laughs> yeah, that would have been great, right? So it's like the onion lab. Exactly. Taking, taking care of HR processes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So st still company level. 
HR sucks, but it doesn't have to, is yeah. your tagline. Yeah. T tell us more about that. You know, it took me a while to, uh, you know, so I, I was in corporate environments as like my journey for 20 years. And I think it took me a while to really embrace who I was outside of corporate, right? So like in a corporate environment, you're asked to conform to a lot of standards to get to, you know, to get to the next level, if you will. And I think that what happened to me is I had internalized that quite a bit and I had not really thought about who who I was outside of corporate. And I think that's a journey that a lot of people go through when they leave corporate. And, and you know, I've, I've always been a little bit of like, like, a, like, if you guys read the book, it's a, it, it's a light book. It's funny. It's, it's got just a, it's not, it doesn't take anything too seriously. And I don't take anything too seriously, unless it's something that you have to take seriously. Um, and so I wanted, you know, I, I wanted something that, that, kind of got to people from where there was an emotional pull. And, and it was like every time I would talk to somebody in my family or friends and they would have an HR issue, they would start to tell me about it. And then at some point I'd say, look, you got to go talk to your internal HR person. And they'd be like, really? I got to go talk to HR? And, you know, they just don't listen. And there's this and there's that. So, you know, when I, I, I worked with a marketing firm that helped me, you know, really figure out my voice um, after leaving corporate. And I think really we came up with this concept of, you know, HR just sucks. And then we're like, but it doesn't have to, right? And so we decided to go with that as a tagline. And as I shared with you before we started recording, I was pretty nervous because it's, it's pretty edgy. And, you know, I wasn't sure how people would react because I was used to a lot of buttoned up environments. Um, but it, people really laugh at it. They find it, you know, interesting, intriguing. They want to go deeper into it. And it all, and, it, and the bigger thing is, you know, from a marketing perspective, it really resonates with people because it's how they feel. Like, I don't want to deal with that because that's hard and it's messy. And it's, you know, a lot of traditional HR people come in with, hey, um, if we don't do this, we're going to get sued, you know, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Um, but it, it's I, I love it. It's and it's I've had it now for three years and I've gotten nothing but compliments on it. Yeah, I, I would already like work with you if, if I remember back my corporate times, like just because of that, it's already an openness. You're definitely different than others. Yes. And and and, and being into the face like that is I, I, I really love that. And I think that's a differentiator we need in today's time, because like you said, there we we're in in an environment in a society at least in in my opinion is where we are all trying to fit in trying to fit into hey to be like you said if you if you want to make a career in a, in a large corporation specifically fortune 500 you need to play the party game yeah if you're not if you're not seen as being someone who is who is stepping up in the same way like all others did before you're not fitting in um And I think we need more of, of of the rebels of the world, specifically if we now go into innovation. <laughs> I agree with that. And I think, you know, and I know we're going to get into this a little bit, but corporate environments don't like rebels. It's really I interesting, know. right? Because they want innovation so badly, but everything they do, and even in my own experience, right, everything they do limits creative people from really you know, embracing their creativity and, and letting, you know, letting like you're, you're kind of looked at as the outlier or the person that doesn't get along with the team or, 
you know, whatever it may be. And it's, and so you learn to conform and to repress some of those, you know, some of those things. And I think that's really what's hurting innovation is we haven't created an environment where creative people can thrive. Yeah. And officially it is oh, a lot of executives say we need to have the rebels. We need to have them, but don't, don't touch me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can be rebel wherever you want, but not, not towards me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I've been there. Um, so HR, uh, one of, one of, one of the things which I would like to talk and, and, and pick your brain on is, uh, what is modern HR, um, specifically in the fast paced world where we are in, a lot of things are changing. Like if you just compare it 1997, which we talked to about, it's like the world today is completely different. Yeah. And I think de the demand on, on people working in, in companies is completely different than than it was in 1997. So, what is modern HR for you? Yeah, and I'll just I'll I'll just add to that a little bit. I mean, in 1997, it was all about IT changing, right? And IT sitting at the table, and you know, right. IT was going through a similar transition. And now, I really see this as HR. So, modern HR is HR that is designed to grow revenue and create a place where people love to work. And so where there is a traditional HR mindset of a cost center, um, you know, a, a compliance mindset, um, you know, checking the box, not really thinking about building things that are compelling to employees that just, you know, compel the employee to want to do something versus enforcing something, right? So this isn't personnel. I like to joke, it's not your mom's HR, right? What this is, is HR that is designed to drive business outcomes. So if you need to grow revenue or if you need to enter into a new market, what are the people aspects that need to happen and what can HR do to make sure that those programs are aligned to their programs are aligned to making things happen? And a lot of the pushback I get is, well, what about compliance? And I'm not saying that compliance isn't important, but I think it's about like if you're doing all the right things from a culture, an organization, a people, even a rewards perspective, the compliance follows. Right. So it's just compliance is important, but it's not what we design around. We're designing around the employee and the manager experience and those business goals. Yeah. And, and I think if, if we now dive deeper into innovation, I think that's also one of the factors which which helps companies to innovate more and or people inside the company. So what what is your experience? How can HR and and the people part support an organization to innovate? Yeah, I think HR has a huge role in helping companies innovate, right? Because in order to innovate, it's what we were just chatting about. It's really there's a couple of things, right? There's inclusion, which means that we have to figure out how to create an environment for people where creative people, where they can thrive, right? We have to look at the culture of the company and make sure that we're creating those opportunities for people to be creative and to try different things. And, you know, we throw things out like Google gives its employees 20% of their time to work on whatever they want. I mean, that's, that's a really smart thing to do where we're not, we're not looking at results all the time and short-term wins, but we're just looking at you know, what new ideas are coming and how can we help cultivate those and, and make those into um, into businesses that can, you know, or new revenue streams for us. And I think that also from a culture standpoint, right, we have to embrace that you're not always going to be successful. And when we were talking about the corporate environment earlier, it's always getting to the next level. 
well, what if getting to the next level incorporated, you know, you've had some type of failure and you want to be careful about failure, right? You don't want to take the whole company down, but you also need to be learning from failure and you can't really innovate until you have those failed experiments. So I think there's a lot that, that HR can do. And, you know, I think a lot of companies try to look at innovation as a process and, you know, I, I think once you have ideas and, and they're ready, you know, you do need a mechanism from taking them from the idea station, uh, the idea stage into, you know, into a formalized revenue stream. And I think that's a valid process. But there's also a part of me that that's like, hey, you just got to let ideas flow and, and try and test um, and, and learn and see what happens. And I think it's up to HR to make sure that that's happening uh, properly and or in creating an environment where it can happen. The other thing that I find super interesting is most corporate people that you talk to at the middle management level and above are um, always in meetings, right? Like how many friends do you have that work in corporate that are like, oh my God, I was in meetings from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. I didn't have a break. I couldn't, you know, eat lunch. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even go to the restroom. And that kind of stuff, like how do you how do you have time to think? How do you have time to be innovative, right? And I even think, uh, you know, so so meeting culture and how things get done that's all HR's responsibility. And lastly, the one thing I think companies don't look like is don't look at is their organizational structure, right? And so if you have a lot of levels in your organization, you probably have a lot of bureaucracy in your organization, mm-hmm. and so. Good ideas often happen at the level at the at, at the lower levels, right? Like the people dealing directly with your customers or your or your clients are the ones that are going to be like, "Oh my god, this is so crazy. Why don't we try it this way?" And if you don't have a way to get their voices into the innovation room, you know, that's going to or the innovation area, that that's going to you know, really impact your ability to to innovate and and create new new roles. So, I can go on on this topic forever. I think HR can do so much to uh, create an environment of innovation from the leadership down to the lowest levels. I think this is really their opportunity to drive it at the company. What is your experience if we if we dive into that from maybe not direct clients right now, but from from the history? Uh, why is it not happening? Well, I think it's a, a lot of the things that we talked about. So first, you know, HR is at this inflection point where, you know, leaders are asking more from HR. They want HR at the table. HR is still struggling in a lot of instances. There are there are people and cultural leaders that are that are doing better at this, but many of the companies are struggling to really um, be strategic and and to think about HR in a modern way. And hmm. um, I think companies say they want this type of stuff, but, but developing a tolerance for failure, developing like that's hard. I mean, most of, you know, most companies are incentivized for short-term results. So innovation is a long-term benefit and, you know, it can take years to see something come to fruition. And I just don't think that we have the right incentives in place to be able to drive that. And that, that is something HR can impact but it's also something that needs to happen at a broader level where leadership needs to be incentivized to, um, to really innovate and to have more of a long-term view. And it's, 
I, I don't know what the answer is to that yeah. just yet. I think we still have to experiment to get there, but it's more than just equity in a company, right? There, there has to be something beyond that that really says, okay, yeah, we, we, uh, you are incentivized to, to build this. And then I even think within HR, you know, we've talked a lot about how HR can help and companies. I think there needs to be a culture of innovation within HR and HR is not experimenting enough. It's not trying new ideas. It's not all about the latest technology. I mean, I get calls from some really great vendors who want to break into HR, but just can't seem to get anyone's attention and can probably solve a lot of problems. But HR is just, you know, shut down and is like, no, we don't have budget. No, we don't have time. Right. And so that mindset has to shift as well. Yeah. With your experience from an international perspective, do you see differences in different parts of the world where things are extremely different? And not really, which is unfortunate, right? As as big of a world as we are, um, I, I think that it is this this concept of innovation has been challenging for a lot of companies, right? Or for a lot of for a lot of cultures. This, this concept of embracing failure, like we can all talk about it, we can have a value around it, but when you really try to have that embedded in a culture, you know, it, it, I think that's a, that's a huge ask for companies to start thinking that way, because it's just, you know, you're really taking a traditional company culture and you're turning it on its head. And I just, it takes so long to get there. Right. And this is why you also see, startups having much more success and in innovation because they don't have these constraints, right? They can just yeah. go and like experiment and try and fail and try and fail. But as they get bigger and their products are, are, you know, out there, you see less and less of that because that's really something you can do in a, in a smaller phase. And I think many companies, many large companies strategies around um, innovation is to always leave a portion of the budget to acquire startups, you know, because that, they know that's where it's going to come from. Yeah. And the fun part is I'm working a little bit with investors in Silicon Valley and so on. So when they look into startups, they look for startups who have a founder who has already failed with one yes. startup. So it's like a badge of honor if you have failed. If yeah. you just compare this to the corporate world where I've been as well, it's like failure is definitely not a badge of honor. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, you look around and, you know, you, you get branded with like, you know, the, the F and, you know, nobody, nobody wants to, uh, to work with you when you failed. It, you know, it's not celebrated. And that concept is great. Like, let's celebrate failure, but it is very hard to implement. Yeah. So, do do you have any good examples of how a company from an action perspective could start looking into that? And if we focus on the people part, how, how, or ha did you have any good examples where companies start doing it and really investing into this long-term? And I think the, the, the thing is first, right. You know, companies adopt it as part of their, uh, you know, the, their operating model, right? That they that they would have to say, okay, this is what we're going to do. And then I think they have to figure out ways to hold themselves accountable to it. So, you know, I think it's metrics around, you know, failure. And, and that's really hard to, um, to quantify sometimes. So you have to be a little creative about how you're going to do that. And I think it's going to differ by company, depending on how much innovation. I mean, are you trying to do moonshots? Or are you just trying to innovate on a, on a product that you already have. So there's, 
you know, there's different types of innovation. And I think <clears throat> having the right metrics in place to measure that some of the th these things are happening. I also think it's a maturity curve, right? Like you can't start at the most mature level of, of failure, right? Which I know that sounds very odd, but I think you have to kind of say, okay, we're going to tolerate this failure. We're going to get good at tolerating this very low level of failure. And then we're going to increase it over a, a period of time, just like any type of change that you'd be looking for. And then I think you need some type of mechanism to capture the failures and to capture the lessons from the failures. And I agree with you on, you know, founders that have failed wear a badge of courage or, you know, have a special badge. But if they haven't learned from those failures, if they haven't been introspective, then those failures don't mean anything. And so I'm really looking for, you know, people like a way to have really deep conversations with people that get to those learnings, because the most important part of that failure is not that you failed, but what did you, what did you get from that? You know, what did yeah. you learn and how are we going to apply that to the future? And so, I mean, I think those are the initial steps that you have to create, but you also have to, you have to get your shop in order, right? You have to make sure you have it in your culture. You need to make sure your organization is set up from a, you know, we talked about the layers, we need to make sure you're, you know, you're recruiting and your experimentation on the, the people side that you're creating the right mechanisms and the right opportunities. You can't just say, okay, I mean, maybe Google's very successful with this, but most companies that are adopting a culture of innovation need to have practices in place that drive innovation, both, you know, top down and bottom up. Yeah. And then, you know, I think it's from a rewards perspective, you need to, to make part of the short-term compensation and the long-term equity or whatever that long-term incentive is um, based off of innovation. Yeah. So if we leave the innovation piece a little bit, having an HR professional uh, on the call, w one thing I'm very interested in is looking a little bit into the future and seeing just the differences of, like, I'm now 40 years old and, and I'm working in other projects with youngsters, like they're early 20s, and they're thinking completely different. Yeah. Like they, they, they value sustainability. They value like the purpose of the company. They don't value too much the money they get right now. How, how do you, how do you see that part changing and as well companies adopting to secure the future talent? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think I, and I may have shared this with you and, um, you know, when we were talking about my marketing, uh, I work with with really young folks to build my marketing. And I met a ton of marketing firms and they, uh, when I was looking for somebody to help me and nobody had creative, innovative ideas for what I wanted to do. So, you know, I, I work with people that are probably half my age <laughs> um, and they, they get, they get messaging, they get the internet, they get, um, you know, they get how to sell online. They, they get all these things that I think, you know, they just have, they come at it from a totally different perspective. And so I think that, you know, we have to figure out ways to be able to work together with, with people, especially the, 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 the folks that are coming in right now, because they come at it from a totally different perspective. We have to embrace that and we have to learn from it in this, culture that we've had, you know, I mean, we're roughly around the same age, although if you're just 40, then I'm, 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 I'm quite a bit older, I guess. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, we've come from this culture of you have to pay your dues, right, yeah. to get to the next level. And I just don't think that that's going to work anymore, right? Like, yeah. 
the knowledge is not sent, the institutional knowledge may be centered on the top, but the way to be successful in today's world is spread out across all generations. And we have to figure that out and figure out a way for intergenerational, you know, communication for, uh, you know, collaboration and, and ways that people can work together to really, you know, because there's there's value in the institutional knowledge and then there's value in taking a totally different perspective. And so bringing that together mm. is, is really important in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. We will not go deeper into this because I know that we have scheduled another podcast interview yes. on, <laughs> where, where it's century. all about all about um, the generational exchange and learnings. But what I just wa was interested in, in your perspective from a career perspective um, and, and seeing that. So future fitting an organization, if we, if we move towards that direction, how do we, and, and not just from a telling perspective, how do we need to change us? So, so people working inside the organization, And, and linking that a little bit to, to what you said when, when you said, I needed to find my voice leaving the corporate world. So, and I've had the same, exactly the same. I was thinking like, oh my God. And I've heard it from a lot of people as well who left the corporate world to, you need to find yourself, which in a way for me is weird. It's like, hey, you're, let's say, 35 years old and you need to find yourself. You need to find your voice. Excuse me. Yeah. So wh why is that? Do you have any experience on that? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we're always finding our voice, right? Like I, I think we're always changing. We're not, you know, static people where, you know, I, I, I had dinner with a friend last night and he was, you know, he'd been married for, he's been married for over 20 years and he was telling me, in marriage, you know, people, people grow differently. And he said, you know, if I were, if I were to describe my wife 20 years ago, it's very different than who she is now. And if she were to describe me 20 years ago, it's very different. And so we're always changing. And I think we're always trying to find our authentic voice. But I think what happens when you're part of a corporation, you know, to some degree, you take on that identity. And, you know, when you leave that and you're not going to another corporation where you take on another identity, I think you've got to figure out what makes you you right without without some type of overarching theme that is you know coming from somebody else. And that's I think that's really hard work. I mean, I struggled a lot. Yeah. I mean, I Me think too. I even have a poem about this. I have a I, I write poetry. But, it, you know, it's um, you are shedding a skin that has been um, on top of you for 20 years. And you're trying to figure out, like, who am I and what is it that I want to be doing? And I, I think those are huge. I don't want to call them existential questions, but they're they're philosophical questions that you have to wrestle with. And that's hard work. I mean, I definitely struggled. And I would tell you that when I didn't have my authentic voice, my business struggled. Right. Yeah, I, I yeah. couldn't go out and talk about things in a way where people were compelled to listen and to say, well, how can you help me? I mean, that <clears throat> getting my arms around my voice was was really important. And but it is hard. And I don't know that everybody really want, you know, everybody wants to to, to go through that or to deal with that because it's there's a lot of soul searching work that, you know, some people just aren't prepared to do. No, I, I agree. And I see that. For for me, the question is really, so 
does it mean if we, if we if we linked it to the talents and the the young young people starting today, do they want to have this skin, this corporate skin? Yeah. Um, do we need to change the corporate setup in the future that it's not like giving you the layer of the corporate skin where you grow into something where you build your own skin in a different way? I think, yeah, I think you've hit on it, right? Like, I think <clears throat> when you talk about the purpose and, you know, how people are, are more about what is this company trying to achieve, I definitely think that, you know, putting a, a layer around people or, or having that an overarching theme, I mean, it's it's really not consistent with the messages that you hear today around inclusion and, you know, not and, and bringing your whole self to work. And I also think that the, the generations that are coming in now, and even you know through the pandemic, a lot of the millennials have realized that there is, you know, there's another way that things can be done. And I think companies are starting to realize that there may be another way that, that things can be done. And I think where you're going to see a lot of innovation there is, you know, really challenging the full-time work model. In the U.S., we call it the W-2, which is the, the tax uh, form that they get. But the permanent employee model, it, I think, is is at risk, right? I, I don't think you're going to, like, I, I envision a future where, you know, most people are working for a variety of different companies, similar to, to how we work, right? Yeah. Um, where the fractional model really takes off, where, and, you know, there are many more independent contractors or consultants that are helping you with things that are non-core to the business, but still essential, And, and then maybe you have smaller corporations, which are just made up of people that are very core to the business and trying to drive very specific things. And it makes sense for the company to have them on board. I do think that the work model, I mean, the pandemic forced a little bit of the work model to be innovated, but I, I, I think or to, for us to innovate the work model, but I, I think that there's a ton more to do. And any company that's thinking, We're going to go back to the way it was. I mean, that's just like that. That is a, you know, yeah, the company won't be long, uh, won't be around for long because I just don't think that's possible. Right. There's no going back. And And that's what the people are not accepting it. No. Like if if you would tell me, which is not going to happen because I have my own business. But if if you would tell me I need to go into an office nine to five or even longer if you're in a management position. Every, every day. Like, I can't imagine that anymore. I mean, and, and I mean, it's amazing to me that I did it for so long. Yeah. And even when I was doing it, I was like, there's got to be a better way. Why do I have to, you know, especially when I was in the global role, why do I have to have calls at 5 a.m. and 9 p.m. and then be expected to sit in 45 minutes of traffic and drive to this office and wear a suit? Yeah. But the and, and these kinds of strict rules um, prevent innovation from really happening because it's not like sitting at my desk, I'm going to have this in, in a stark office, right? That where every office is decorated the same and has the same furniture. I'm going to suddenly have this great idea. It's when I'm out for a walk or I'm doing something that, you know, usually is not work that the ideas mm. really come to me. Yeah. I I could talk like two hours more, but <laughs> <laughs> me too. But- But we need to talk about the comeback. Yes. Which is your book. So before we go into what it is exactly, I would love to hear your story of why did you write that book? 
Yeah, so The Comeback is a modern HR novel. So it's actually fiction, but it's mm-hmm. about a, a journey that, a, a, you know, a company takes to modernize their HR. I wrote this book. I mean, there are a couple of reasons. I joke that um, during the pandemic, I got tired of binge watching TV. <laughs> and so I wanted to create my own stories. Um, but, but really what happened to me is I had all these anecdotes and data points about modern HR but I was struggling to get, and people would hear them and they'd be like, okay, that makes sense, but they wouldn't really internalize it. And so I wanted people to have a way to say, look, if you apply these five or six principles, you're going to see the business results. And so the story is about that. It's a, it's a private equity backed manufacturing company that's in um, Chicago, Illinois, in the U S um, they are um, experiencing a, a third-party competitor and who is um, really trying to, who is taking market share away. And so you're probably going, well, how is this an HR book, right? But um, the CEO, you know, he, he realizes that he can shore up the sales, the marketing, the R&D, the operations, but he's struggling with the people side. And he's got a very strong and capable HR leader. She's just not focused on the right things. So this is her journey working with a coach uh, to modernize the HR function. And so it really tells the tale and it's fun and it's light and it's like got, you know, I mean, for U.S. based people, it's got a a baseball theme, but it's still interesting for people who are not in the U.S. Um, And a a cheap uh, beer. We have a a beer in the U.S. called Pabst Blue Ribbon, which is like, you know, kind of the joke for cheap beer. So we have a lot of references to that kind of stuff. So it's just meant to be fun. And a lot of the conversations take place outside of the office. So the book is written in pre-pandemic, um, but it, the epilogue deals with the pandemic because we just, I didn't know where the pandemic was going to go when I was writing it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it is, it, it is really her journey. And the coach that she works with is loosely disguised as me. So uh, it's maybe semi-autobiographical and, you know, <laughs> on the coach side, not on the, not on the HR side. So, yeah. yeah. What I love about that is, so often if it's like I've read a lot of leadership and HR books um, in the past. Um, wh- what I love about that is it's it's the same interest for from a from a CEO from a student because it's a story, yeah. Um, and it's not something like where you you know exactly okay this is the five step model and I will learn the five step model. Um, and I think that's something very, very interesting to get people into topics. Like it's not every CEO, like you said, is into the people part. Yeah, I think I believe every CEO should be in the people part. Uh, utmost, that's one of the most important things, more important than the bottom line for me. Um, because if you don't have the people part in order, the bottom line will will be as well not in order. But right. that's that's another story. So getting people into into these topics is so hard. I mean, working with innovation, for me, it's also only about people. It's not about the process. It's like, how do you get people to innovate in an organization is the most important thing. It's not, what process do you use and plug in? What did you see in Google that you can repeat and do in your organization? It, it might, most of the time, it doesn't fit. It's more about Absolutely. how can you empower the people inside of your organization? Going back to the book is... How do you inspire people to think and start think exploring around the people part, but don't push them into it? It's 
it's for me it's 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 a brilliant way of writing a book um and i haven't read it to be honest in in, in all that I, I was flipping through it and checking it on the in the internet but i will read it because I, i i like it very much from a perspective of getting people interested in topics they might not search for yes And and you're right. There isn't a model of I do these five things and suddenly I have modern HR. And I think that's true of a lot of things, right? And I and this is a mindset shift for HR people because they're always looking for those best practices. And this book actually addresses like best practices get you at a level playing field with your competitors. They don't do anything to differentiate you. And what you're trying mm-hmm. to do now in the HR world is really differentiate the company. Yeah. Then an, another thing which I think a lot of people see as a weakness working with a coach yes specifically as a leader as an executive um they see it like oh he's not performing that's why he's getting a coach or she's not performing but then you look into i always compare it with the sports world if you look into the sports world everyone like literally everyone in the whole world who is performing at the top level has a coach yes I, I think coaching is so important. I've had a coach, I've had coaches, I should say, um, my entire corporate career. And yeah. even now I rely on a business development coach. I have a, a peer coach that kind of, you know, helps me think about new ways for the business. I mean, you, you have ideas, like, like I'm a person that has a lot of ideas and a lot of thoughts, but maybe doesn't always know the best way to deal with those ideas yeah. and thoughts. And a coach just helps guide you. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's that's if if we just look into businesses right now, that's also not usual. Yeah, I mean there are tons of to- coaches out there which could support large corporations, small corporations, entrepreneurs like myself, yourself, but it's it's not normal yet. It's it needs to be normalized, and they're looking for managers to do the coaching, but coaching is actually a very different skill set. Um, and it, it's something that you have to learn how to do because as managers, our instinct is to just, you know, be very prescriptive and tell people what the, and that, you know, like when you've got pressure on you, like it, it's all well and good to say managers should coach and we should all aspire to do that. But when you have pressure on you to deliver things, it is really hard um, to take that approach of not being prescriptive and you know, letting someone kind of figure it out. And I know that's important for their growth and even for innovation, but somehow we have to deal with that tension better and we have to better equip our managers and and we have to create environments where managers have the time to do that and aren't just like trying to get a deadline done, right? And yeah. but we do need to better equip our managers to be able to coach. It's a skill set, not a, now you need to coach, <laughs> right? No, yeah. I mean, I, w- I I've had the fortune to, to, to work in a company and grow from, from a store level to a global level where this leadership style was taught from, Hey, you're getting into your first leadership role. You need to learn that Yeah. to then go stepping up the ladder in different parts of the organization where it's worse than you, you need to widen your coaching skills. So it's not about having five people. It's about having 20 people, 100 people, thousand people, whatever. And then you add the, the cultural component of that you work in one country you do it in one way um like for my if you take myself i moved from germany to russia it's like you can't coach or lead if if we say leadership um you can't do that in the same way it's completely different cultures if you do one thing successful in one country 
you try to do exactly the same somewhere else, it's not going to work. Yeah, early on in my career, when I took the global role, I, I had a team that had people from Asia, Europe, you know, just across the board from, from all these different countries. And I would try to, um, you know, have these meetings and I'd ask people for feedback and, and nobody would say something from, from different, you know, from like in the Asian culture, nobody would say anything from my Asian team. And I used to get really frustrated. And then I realized when someone gave me the feedback of, you know, you can't ask them for feedback. They find that offensive. Like you really have to learn how to work with yeah. all these different cultures and what the norms are, what's accepted. And you're absolutely right. Just because someone was successful in one country does not mean they're going to be successful in another country. What that really, if you have the ability to listen, to learn and to tailor your style, which I think all comes from coaching, that's when you can, learn how to be successful in different environments yeah so closing closing the book what else should people know about the book i think and um, the book is a, you know first of all it's a fun read i think it's super informative and i think it really helps you to get an understanding of what it means to have modern hr and mm -hmm. um, and one of the big themes in the book and i won't give too much away is, uh, you know, as intentional as we are about our customers, right? Like we, we think about, you know, we listen to the feedback, we think about how to attract them, we think about how to retain them, how to, how to have them buy additional services or products from us. We need to be that intentional about our people, right? We need to be thoughtful about how we recruit them, thoughtful about how we retain them. We can't leave these things to chance if we want to be successful in the modern world. Yeah, love that. Now we'll add, of course, uh, the link to the book and everything um, in, into the show notes so people can directly find it. Awesome. Super. Let's go to the last part where I'm asking a couple of questions that are a little bit un unrelated to what we have discussed right now. Um, I'm always asking a question starting off with that is if you could work with the project that's impacting every human being on earth, What project would you choose to work on and why? I think, I, and this project may not exist today, but I would love to figure out a way where we can learn how to be kind to each other. I don't know where we lost kindness, but somewhere over the last several years, we've lost the ability to, to be kind to each other, to have compassion and to, you know, and really seek to understand versus you know, trying to be understood. And I don't know what that project looks like, but to me, if there's work that I can do in, in companies to really build those types of cultures, um, that, that is a real passion of mine to, to just get people to like, I think, you know, we are so in, in, you know, not to get into politics or anything, but we are very, we are more alike than we are different. And I think, you know, unfortunately the media highlights our differences more than where we're alike. And that's unfortunate. And we need to be smarter and better than that and demand more um, from, from each other and from our media and, 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 and all of that. So I don't know what that looks like, but that is something that I've been thinking about a lot and really want to figure out a way to impact. That's a great one. Next question. How... Sorry, I was just distracted. No worries. <laughs> I get so many good ideas when you talk. That... 
And that's how it is when you do podcasts. You, you're 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 literally getting a lot of ideas on top of the interview. Did you figure so, out the project to solve world peace that we're going to work on? No, exactly. <laughs> no, and and the because because you're now number one hundred thirteen. I have asked this question quite quite a lot, and I always yeah. think like, oh, I could connect her to this person or that's similar. That's what's just my brain was on overload. Sorry awesome. for that. Awesome. <laughs> so. Um, where will you be in a year from now? And you can answer that from a personal perspective or business perspective. I'm, I'm hoping a year from now, the book really gets a big audience and some good reception and that I am writing a sequel of some sort uh, to the book because uh, I really enjoyed the writing process. Um, you know, that that's really my main goal. I feel like I have, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm always... Uh, excited to be contributing to clients and watching their growth. Um, but for me right now, the passion is really about the content side of the business and how I can have a bigger impact in um, helping people at more at a grassroots level, right? Really think about HR in a different way. And so I, that, that's really where I'd like to be a year from now. Last question. How do you keep yourself informed on the topics that interest you? Um, so I'm a voracious reader. Um, I also, uh, and, and, it, and both fiction and nonfiction. So I actually learn a lot uh, from fiction just as much. And, and what I love about fiction is you have to figure out the lessons, right? They're not just out there for you. And so, um, you know, when it comes to learning about different cultures or different approaches, I, I really like to read uh, fiction. The other thing that I think is, you know, and I just recently, I'd say over the last, two years have gotten into this is podcasts. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm late to the game. I get it. But, um, you know, I walk a lot and I run a lot and I, I love listening to podcasts because, um, and sometimes I'm like, there's no way I'm going to be interested in this topic. And I find myself pulled in to these topics that I thought there's no way that I would uh, ever listen to them. So I, I definitely love listening to, um, so, so a couple that I like right off the bat, um, Uh, you know, I, I, I love listening to Brene Brown. I think she opens my eyes on, uh, she has two podcasts and I like wait for them to come out. I'm so excited. Adam Grant is another one that I, his work-life podcast is awesome. But then there's just, you know, all of these different podcasts like this one, or like I was listening to Hidden Brain the other day, or there's an HR Rebel podcast that I really like. So um, and I'm not looking always to have the most... Like what I find too is, is people that, inter that interview more common type guests versus big names are really like you find so many nuggets and, and kernels of, of things that you can learn and lessons in those podcasts. I really enjoy those. So I'm um, always looking for good suggestions if anybody wants to send them to me. <laughs> yeah. So everyone who has more ideas on podcasts, shoot them to Anissa. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anissa, it was Super pleasure. Um, be, before we leave up, how, how can uh, people find you? How can people reach out to you? Yeah, and my website is uh, the best way, thelowlab.net. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Anissa D. Twitter, okay. And I will, of course, put that into the show notes. Anissa, thank you very much. It was a pleasure having you. I could do a couple of hours more, but I know you're a busy person as well. Thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.
Thanks for listening to today's episode. You will find the links and resources in the show notes of this episode. If you would like to support the podcast, the most impactful thing you can do is subscribing to the show on any of the podcasting platforms and give me a review. This will help me to reach more innovators around the world and bring some of you into the show. If you have any question to the guest or want to engage with me, feel free to reach out to me on social media and contact me there. Thanks and see you in the next episode.